Now, the Be More Human podcast is all about storytelling and how important this is in the era of the machine. With the impact of AI, will machine be able to tell better stories than human beings? Well, I'll put it to you this, and really the hypothesis and the thesis of Be More Human is that storytelling is the ultimate human skill. It's what makes us humans, and we are humans because we tell stories. So I'm really pleased in today's episode of Be More Human after some time doing my last episode that I can reconnect with some great storytellers who really can help us understand how storytelling reclaims our humanity. I'm joined today by Rain Bennett, who is a film documentary maker and a true believer in storytelling and the art and craft of storytelling. We're going to talk about his movie, his documentary, Raise Up, which has won some awards and really how storytellers, whether you are a documentary maker or a presenter or a podcast host or a writer, whatever it is in different formats, use stories to challenge narratives. And those narratives could be about gender. They could be about race. They could be about any issue in society where there is a dominant narrative which controls also not only how we think about the world now but ultimately history and you look at where we are today a very divisive world very binary in terms of black or white or left or right or conservative or progressive or christian or muslim there there are these binary dual identities which pit people against each other when ultimately i think if we look at the fundamental level of what humanity is it's it's more similar than it is different and stories are a great way of reminding us that and a great way of reminding us the power of stories is to look at how we tell them in very innocuous ways and today with rain i want to discuss how we do that not just in politics or business, but also how we do that with kids, for example. How is it the stories that we tell for children impact their lives, teach morals, change their world outlooks? And then we'll also go into down the rabbit hole of storytelling, talk about a few movies, for example, but also um, some areas which you wouldn't expect. We're going to talk about mysteries and uh, a particular mystery which is local to uh, rain in his part of the US, uh, which has been sort of shrouded in myth and storytelling for m decades, if not hundreds of years, and how people have done that to really hide history, which is fascinating. I won't give too much away, but just go back to you know, a very, very early stage of the formation of the United States, pre sort of the the initial settlements where a settlement landed in the United States from the old world and these people disappeared and a lot has been written about it, a lot of mystery and YouTube's full of theories and conspiracy theories and so on but the really fascinating part of this is actually that the story that's been told about their fate that they died or starved or moved on is not actually the case and you have to listen to this because it's fascinating the story rain tells about this because he's been researching this mystery for years and what he uncovered really gives us an insight 
into how we tell stories and why we tell stories and how those affect our identities in very subtle nudges in day-to-day -day life. It's going to go deep. We're going to go into a rabbit hole. But if you love stories, if you love learning about the power of storytelling, then this episode with Rain Bennett on Be More Human is going to be right down your rabbit hole. So one of the things I talk about on Be More Human podcast, Rain, is about AI and how we're sort of entering this world of machine and algorithms and how we're kind of losing our humanity. And yet there's this thing called storytelling, which really helps us reclaim it. We've yeah. been doing it for thousands of years. I know I'm preaching to the choir. We're both sort of kindred spirits when it comes to storytelling. Mm -hmm. So I want to kind of understand that a bit better from your perspective, obviously with the movies and the films, yeah. documentaries you've made. So we're going to talk about that. Yeah. And I just want to kind of open today talking about that. We haven't prepared any of this. Mm -hmm. We've had a few natters offline mm -hmm. and, uh, well, I want to talk about obviously raise up and your work and okay. telling stories and why you tell stories. And sometimes people ask me when they think about storytelling, especially in business context, they think about it as once upon a time. And therefore, it's a bit of a fabrication. It's a bit BS. Mm -hmm. you know, I don't tell stories. Yeah. I tell the truth. Right. Yes. And uh, I, I'm reminded one of the things I, I say, look, to me, this is like one of the most powerful stories told. And there's a, there's a, there's an amazing speech. I don't know if you're aware of it, but Robert Kennedy, who I'm a bit of a personal fan. I have his mug here behind me. So RFK, not, not Jack, not older brother, John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. um, he made a speech on the eve of Martin Luther King's assassination. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it, it's an amazing piece of, well, just basic presentation and public speaking. But the main part was like, okay, you've just had one of the greatest storytellers assassinated you know, the greatest storytellers of the 20th century assassinated somebody who fought and spoke truth and took the risks. And, uh, you could have a politician take advantage of that. And almost these primal forces in this rage that would come with it, stoke it, mm -hmm. you know, what we we're just talking about before we were recording, there are demagogues, there are politicians who do that, but Robert F. Kennedy, instead, he, he stood up and, you know, he said, look, I mean, I'll just read you some of the, the lines from it here. He said, you know, for those of you who are black and tempted to be filled with hatred and distrust at the injustice of such an act against all white people, I can only say that I feel in my own heart the same kind of feeling. I had a member of my family killed, but he was killed by a white man. But we have to make an effort in the United States. We have to make an effort to understand, to go beyond these rather difficult times. What we need is not division what we need in the United States is not hatred. What we need is not violence or lawlessness, lawlessness, but love and wisdom and compassion toward one another and a feeling of justice towards those who still suffer within our country, whether they be white or they be black. And it's interesting that night there were riots all across the United States, you know, anger at Martin Luther King's assassination, but not in, I think it was Louisville. I'm not sure where it took place, but Charlottesville, I'm not sure. I have to get the data, but in the town, the city that he gave that speech, that was the one place that there weren't riots because somebody had used that time to bring people together for a positive change. You know, think about the times that we live in. So I want to put it out there first, because I know you've dealt with these subjects. I know you've dealt with race, gender, identity as well, and how 
we can all play a part in challenging that as well. So it's a quite a strong opener. <laughs> but I'm going to, I know you, you love to tell stories as well. I'm sure you've heard people think of your work, maybe storytelling as kind of fairy tale fabrication. But there's this other part, which is this really powerful ability to connect people. Yeah. I mean, that is the the connection connect is 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 the word uh you know stories in my opinion i think you can back it up as fact is is the most powerful way for humans to connect now what you do with that connection is kind of up to you and your purpose and your mission but it establishes that bond that's clear science shows that history shows that that like that that's that's pretty hard to argue at this point i like your your point about the fabrication it, it, this may have been more in the south than the u.s which is its own culture and identity mm. if, if people are familiar with the states um but yeah they would call you a storyteller like if you were a fibber a liar right if you you know like you and you're a kid are you are you telling a story like i would say to my three-year-old daughter right now i don't say that to her because story means something different in my household but my mom would have said that to me you mm. know are you telling me a story right now when i'd be like i didn't tell take the cookie and if you were a storyteller you were like the the used car sales, but you know what I mean? Like someone who would be fibbing little white lies. They call them not, not mm. really malicious lies. They wouldn't call someone who was criminal with their lies, a storyteller. But are you telling me a story? It was often used to, you know, to, to children. And yeah, now looking back at that and the, the and look and with the role that story plays in my life and the role, I now know that it plays in all of our lives. That's kind of twisted. Like that's that's really that's really twisted. You read a bedtime story to your kid every night, hmm. and then you call them a storyteller, and it's like, well, yeah, I know that these are morals, or these are little, these aren't true. These most of these fictional stories are reading. I suppose that's where it was derived from, right? But hmm. there is truth in all of them because that's the point, right? The messaging was true. You know, the giving tree uh, might wasn't a true story, but the the concepts that it talked about absolutely were right so we took that surface level and not the heart of the story which is what really matters and and storytelling is the way that we communicate and connect with each other there's no argument in that hands down mm. have you told How? your daughter a story like the fables like three little pigs and yeah she's getting Red to the point now where she, yeah we're yeah exactly she's getting to the point now where she's like knowing those those classic nursery rhymes mm. and, and that that sort of thing and so like i'll i'll be the big bad wolf you know when we're like playing pretend and that sort of stuff and she'll run you know run around the house being little red riding hood so yeah we're at that stage where she's starting to really like get those things and and, we'll and fill in those gaps and even tell her own stories which is pretty cool yeah it's interesting that isn't it and it's always fascinating how those stories have just perpetuated if you think about Red Riding Hood as an example, we tell kids not to talk to strangers, but actually what goes in and what is remembered is very different from telling the story of Red Riding Hood. What better way of telling people to be careful yeah. of strangers, whether that's a yeah. good thing or a bad thing, but we teach them that, isn't it? You know, of course. they may eat you and they may look like grandma, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have to be careful, but that's powerful, isn't it? Because that's told. I think there's versions of that story like everywhere in the world in different forms. It may be a wolf. It may be some other kind that's, of animal. Well, that's because like the story and I talk about this in my workshops, the 
there's the surface level of the story, AKA the plot, like what the story is about. And then there's the heart of the story or the core, you know, the, the, the subsurface, the, what's going on underneath what the story is really about in other words. Mm. And in that core, that underneath section, there's only a handful of, cause it's tied to emotions. There's only a handful of emotions that we have as humans. So there's only a handful of stories. There's a lot of surface level stories. So yeah, the big bad wolf. I mean, the little red riding hood, there's a many, there's a myriad of different versions of that, of the top level, but they're all saying and communicating mm. the same thing, right? Which is don't talk to strangers, you know, even if they look like someone, you know, like be wary of that, be, be cautious. That's yeah. That's a moral. That's, that's something we're trying to, to teach people. And that's how mm. stories can be used. They can be used to make connections. They can be used to collaborate. They can be used to teach people in a lot of ways. That's a great way we learn. They can also be used to do harm. Again, back to what I said is stories are connectors. Mm. What you do with that connection is up to you. We've seen stories, you know, i.e. propaganda that's been used for harm plenty of times. The point is stories work for bad and for good. What we just are trying to do is uplift the ones that are doing more good and suppress the mm. ones that are doing bad. And we're in a really challenging time right now for that. Because there's a lot of misinformation being distributed via stories. And there's a lot of that uh, propaganda and just kind of that that ill-intended in, versions mm. of, of storytelling. But the stories still function. The stories are just a tool of communication. They're not inherently good. That comes you, back to people. Yeah. They're, they're a tool. That's a good point, isn't it? The tools could be used anyway. Yeah. When you mention the word propaganda, we we kind of assume like history lessons, World War II propaganda. That's what you assume propaganda. But you you realize actually, and obviously you are in the media world, whether you consider yourself mainstream media or not, but you're part of it in some way. 100%. That we can choose to tell stories in different ways, or choose which stories get told as well. I mean, I, I've had a discussion with an American friend of mine, and I said to him, look even though politically I am in no way in the same, any kind of sympathy or empathy with Donald Trump, let's put it out there. I don't agree with a lot of what he says. I think he's a good storyteller. Oh. And he just blew up. He was like, no, no, he's not. And I can completely understand because he, he so at loggerheads with his politics. But I said, look, somebody that stands up there and says, drain the swamp. That's an amazing story. That's, that's like story. hate speech, but that's storytelling used for the, completely the wrong well, you know, who am I to say, but completely those self-serving. And it taps motive. into the emotions and the things that, that, that the audience that he was trying to attract, which he successfully did maybe better than anybody. It taps into those things, those emotions that they're dealing with. And that's why it resonated with him so much mm. because inevitably he did not drain the swamp. He, he, made, <laughs> he was you know, the he swamp. Made this, he made the swamp murkier and muddier, right? But that's the story he sold them, and they bought it, as we say, hook, line, and sinker, right? They bought into that because they're like, yeah, because they've been being shitted on their whole lives. Mm. So they, when you say we're going to get rid of all these crooked politicians that have been shitting on you forever, yeah, I can get behind that too. The thing is, I know enough to, to, to be able to critically analyze the story that I'm being told for its, for its truth, for its authenticity, right? And many people don't because, because stories are so powerful. When they tap mm. into our emotions, what's going on on the surface 
we don't care because they've hit us somewhere. It's really hard to divorce yourself from what you're feeling inside. It takes a lot of work to be able to have a, a line somewhere where you can ask yourself, like, why do I feel that way? Do I really believe that? Mm -hmm. Most of us don't do that. Most of us don't do that. It takes a lot of work to get to the point where you can self be self-aware and self-analyze your, your actions and your reactions. Most it's of us primal, just isn't it? That's the problem. Oh, 100%. We don't have a control Dude. over rage no. and fear. No, fear. No. Only, yeah, totally. only, only how we react to those emotions, yeah. you know, and, and, and yeah, it's a hundred percent primal. And so is stories. That's why this is all like completely primitive and we have very little control over it unless we are aware of what's going on within us and we can pause and say, okay, I'm not going to go storm the Capitol today. Let me think mm -hmm. about what, means. you know what I mean? But if I see a bunch of people around me and we're getting it, we're basically chimpanzees at that point, you know, yeah. we're, we're it's tribal. We're all subscribing to the same thing. We're responding to fear and you see somebody else running. So I'm running. And yeah. never once did we say like, is this the right thing to do? Yeah, I know. I've been in that situation. I mean, you know, I've been in crowds and the mind takes over that story, Absolutely. that connected identity. Do you think people like, I don't want to go too much into politics, but I'm curious that people like Trump or public speakers are aware of this thing called storytelling? Are they aware of Joseph Campbell, the hero's journey? Okay. What, what do you think? Are, they, are these this people, do they have techniques? Are they consciously using story in this sense, or are they just I, kind of falling into it? What are your thoughts? This is a really interesting question. I've never been asked this, and I don't think Maybe some of them are and can be, but I don't think that that most of them are. They are uh, subconsciously aware. They know that story, but they, they might not know it like you and I know it. Like they couldn't take you through the three act structure and when the, you know, climax happens and mm. Joseph Campbell's here, you know, blah, blah, blah. But they understand on a fundamental, on a primitive level, we could say that story how powerful stories are and they may not even call it that they may just talk about that's what you always hear politicians say i met you know i met a la lady named kathy in iowa and here's what kathy's mm. going through that's because we can relate to a kathy in iowa we can't relate to a hundred thousand people have done this like how can i relate to a hundred thousand that's just a number right and so they may not know what they're doing in a story, but this goes back to how we're wired as humans to communicate this way. They just, they know that it is an effective mode of communication, right? They understand, even if they don't understand on the head level, they understand, you know, on a heart level what they're doing, but can they classify it or do they classify it as like, oh, I'm going to use a storytelling mm. tactic this day. I don't think so. Maybe a small fraction of them, but I think most of them are just responding to the power of narrative, which is what it comes back to. Hmm. It must've been early in their development, isn't it? That early in their career that they, they got on stage, they told a story and they got that kind of reaction. I thought actually, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, that's what people I'm remember. That's what people here. respond to. Yeah. Now maybe they got some media training and, and mm. again, somebody might not have used the word you need to tell stories, but they may have explained to them what I just explained, which is that you can't tell people, you know, all these facts and data. That's not what they resonate with. They resonate with stories. People, people learn that pretty easily. You don't have to be a storytelling expert to understand uh, that people respond to stories. And now it's, you know, it's become a buzzword. So people are, are actually mm. really starting to understand that storytelling is a powerful strategy, but we've always known it. We just didn't always name it. Yeah. Now that's a really good point. We've always felt it. I think yeah. more than anything, rather than giving yeah. it a name. Yeah, let's move into the, the, the world of film. Okay. And it's fascinating, isn't it? That again, going back to the AI point that there are 
many people talking about the death of music or the death of you know art or the death of you know fill the blank because machine will soon be able to do this better and in some cases you know you see those artworks that ai creates and it kind of looks like a rothko you know it's just kind of a blob or right. you've got something which actually looks like a classic painting you know there's the interesting thing is that i mean if you look at any i don't know if you've seen any sort of works of art like in galleries i mean i went to the louvre and saw mona lisa and that was such a disappointment there's massive queues and you know in paris and you look at it and think that's it mm -hmm. but the, the most powerful part of all that is the story isn't it it's like the van gogh it's like you know it's the, it's a good the point. painter isn't it or the jackson pollock you know his story i mean he you can give a, the, you see those YouTube videos of people that give a, a monkey a paint pot. <laughs> it does a Jackson Pollock, right? With all due respect to Jackson Pollock, you know, technically they're not far apart, but they don't have a story. And let, let's move this into movies as, and film as well, because, you know, this is such a powerful area. I mean, you know, look at the, the big success stories in tech in the last few years, companies like Netflix, hmm. right? You know, these are companies that have existed on, you know, effectively sharing movies and sharing film, which is amazing, really, because you thought in this day and age, you know, it'd all be like 30 seconds on YouTube or TikTok, but people are paying and watching deep, you know, immersive narratives, right? Yeah, so let's back up a little. I want to talk about Raise Up. And it's such an interesting story. I mean, this is about calisthenics, right? It's about. Yeah. Uh, you know, why pick this and as a movie subject? And this is kind of like your breakout movie as well, mm -hmm. your documentary. And it's yeah, not I just mean, about it, that. It's, it's about the kind of the whole subculture and identities around it as well. So maybe just kind of back us up and tell us the origin of that. Yeah, it really is about identity. And the more I grow wiser in my years, the more work that I do, the more I realize that everything, Graham, is about identity. Everything comes back to it. The stuff we've already talked about today with political issues, everything comes back to how we view ourselves and the fear of how others might view ourselves, identity, right? So I was, I've always been an athlete and, and I've always struggled with these two identities, you know, to speak of that as an athlete and an artist. I've always been both and I never saw anyone who navigated them both very well. So I kept them compartmentalized for my whole life. Until very recently when I understood through the help of a mentor and coach that actually, if you let them come together, like they've been trying to for 25, 35 years, it's kind of a unique intersection that, that you could exist in and kind of own that lane, right? So I've always been into sports and fitness. I was training at the time, training people in classes, training boxing. And so I was look always looking for new workouts. And I found what these guys and girls in New York were doing at the time, which was an advanced version of calisthenics. Calisthenics, for those listening who don't know, is push-ups, pull-ups, dips, bodyweight exercises, right? No, no weights needed, squats, anything you can do with your body weight. What these people were doing was incredible, flipping over the bar and twisting and rhythmic movement. And because I was boxing at the time, I was like, this looks like boxing, like the way the shifting of, of the body and, and of momentum going from powerful to fluid, very, very smoothly. I was like, this is almost like an art form. It was like break dancing on the bar. It was just like nothing I'd ever seen before. And they were doing it all over everywhere. So they not in traditional gyms, but in, in, in on monkey bars and playgrounds, uh, on park benches, on scaffolding, on streetlights, anywhere they could. 
And that was because it emerged out of low economic areas and these people couldn't afford gyms. Gyms were getting super expensive. These big box gyms with, a, you know, tons of TVs and all this sort of thing were moving away from the, you know, the primitive style of physical fitness, which is just moving your body and going into these big boxed air conditioning, you know, uh, facilities with all these, you know, machines and all these televisions for entertainment to walk on a treadmill for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's not how humans are. You know, that's not how, that's not the story of, of human, you know, fitness. Right. And so it's kind of bringing it back to the basics, but then putting this new spin to it. So visually, remember, we've already talked about the surface level of the story. This was going on all around New York and there were teams, there were organizations like Mm. loosely built organizations with names and they all spawned off of something like bar bartenders, barbarians, bar stars because of the pull-up bar. Right. So on the surface level of the story, I'm like, this is visually like incredible. Like I've haven't seen anything like this. It was kind of blowing up on YouTube, but not in mainstream media, but that alone is not enough for a story. That's a cool uh, video on YouTube, which there were many at that time with millions of views, but I've always been a storyteller. I was a documentary filmmaker already, but I hadn't done my first feature film. I was doing you know, shorter projects for clients, nonprofits and things like that. The heart of the story, which is what made it compelling, is that it was a community building device, a social tool. It was getting kids off the streets, out of gangs, off of drugs. They were turning their lives around in ways I've never seen sport do before. And that is because it was an art form. A form of a form of expression where these children, most of them, could find their voice. Now, I know that basketball or, 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 or football has changed someone's life. There's no argument in that. But because this gave people a voice and it was free, so it brought together different social groups that wouldn't normally be together. We see we're, mm. these themes we keep coming back to, right? With stories, it's, it's it's about you know group behavior, but also bridging that gap between you know divides or lines that we may have in our culture and society. So this was putting rich people with poor people, uh, cop with ex-convicts, black with white, you know, any line that you can draw, people were bonding around the bar. And it was like, hold up, there's something much Mm. deeper going on here. This is impacting neighborhoods. When the kids would start to care about their bodies, they would get better grades. They would learn better social uh, skills. They would gain more confidence. It would impact and transfer to other places and aspects of their lives, changing their lives. So many stories, endless stories of people who were like in and out of juvie or, you know, like juvenile detention jail when they're young and in gangs and on drugs that once they found this culture and this sport, completely completely changed their 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 lives around most of those stories were like that Hmm. so that's what made it compelling to me and and i went out on this journey and it was me a solo venture i i couch surfed around the world for a couple of years with a little dslr camera and a backpack and tried my best to capture the story of of how this was impacting people around the globe and at that point it had gone global they were having world championships in countries i had never heard of and I traveled all, all, you know, all over the world for a couple of years to, to document it. Yeah, it's awesome. It was and wild. It was wild. But I'm like, for you as the filmmaker as well, did you have much contact with those communities before you made those movies? That that documentary, you know, not like, specifically. Did you know people that were in and out of juvenile detention, or was that? Oh, kind of that's a, new a good world? question. Um, not particularly. 
Not particularly. I didn't not know people like that, but I, I grew up in a small town, a rural right. community. Sure, there were some people that had, there's not much to do. So there's often a lot of drugs in small towns. So I know people that had done time, but in New York, it's a little different. You know, it's just like a little different. These are like the hardest, you Rikers Island and, you know, right. these, they're like hard uh, in, um, jails Propagags. and prisons. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, exactly. And even the juvie centers are like uh, notorious. So some of the people who I became very close friends with, we're in the same places that like Mike Tyson was when he was coming. You know what I mean? That's a little different than little Washington, North Carolina, right. you know, being in Brownsville, Brooklyn is a totally different world. So then when, once I started getting into this space, then I spent a lot of time with people who had done time hmm. to change their, their lives around. So, but prior to that, I can't really say not, not to that level by any means. Did that change your opinion of them? Cause I, I you know, like I imagine most people, their understanding of that world is through Fox News <laughs> or, or similar, which is not going to be unempathic, or is that's the right word, right? I mean, did yeah. you like helping them tell their story? Did you kind of see similarities? I know you've like had a very different path, but mm -hmm. did you see well, sort of empathize with them a bit, or how did that kind of work? Well, for sure. I mean, I never, I didn't have any preconceived notions because somewhere along the line, like I always had this ability, maybe this is what helps me be a good storyteller. I always had this ability to, to break those lines or bridge those gaps. You know, we talked about my dual identities. Anyway, there's probably mm. a few extra smaller ones in there. So I could hang with the, you know, the, the druggy crowd, the criminal crowd, the, the nerdy crowd, the theater kids, the jocks, like I always could navigate different social circles very well. So it never like, Oh God, he's been in jail. Never did I have that kind of thought. So it didn't change my opinion on anybody. Cause I didn't come in there with like, Ooh, he's been to jail. Like mm -hmm. I never, I never had that. However, what sparked, uh, what really was meaningful to me helping them share their stories was the potential and the ability to help others that were basically them 10 years before. Mm -hmm. So kids seeing these stories of how this fitness subculture could change their lives of someone who looked like them, a Dominican kid in Washington Heights, seeing the bar stars, which were Dominican kids from Washington Heights, like on, you know, on mainstream media doing tricks around the pull-up bar. And they're like, wait, I, I do that too in our playground. Like, Maybe I don't have to have this because nobody really wants to 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 spend their life in and out of jail. That's just all they know. You mm -hmm. know, that's that's the that's the group that they were brought up in. That's the, the the world that they know, the normal world. If you want to bring it back to you know Joseph Campbell and and Hero's Journey, that's their world. Um, so that was probably the most fulfilling thing for me is to like mm -hmm. let's share these stories because it can show them a path forward. And it did for many, many kids who then, you know, followed in their footsteps. Yeah. It's fascinating. If you were growing up in that world, you know, if you were in a world where you didn't have those kind of alternative stories that probably you were surrounded by people and the only people who had respect were those that probably ran the streets, yep. dealed, gang banged all that yep. stuff were in and out yep. and it was probably you know a feather in their cap to serve time absolutely and then if you look at the media i think it was like a michael moore documentary i can't remember which one it was but one of the very early early ones and he was showing wouldn't it be interesting if rather than just you know it made you question that with this constant carousel of imagery on tv of you know black kids being chased by police 
And so every time you saw a black kid, you just had this kind of imagery, you know, it's a very primal story implanted in your head that that guy was a criminal because that's all you ever saw, you know, these black kids being chased by police. So he said, wouldn't it be interesting if you kind of like did that to white collar, white, you know, office workers? Yeah, we don't treat it the same way at all. We don't treat it the same way at all. You know, yeah, and it's at, just, look, we don't have, understand how powerful that is. But then when you present this, okay, so here are these kids who are now making good on their lives and actually have kind of respect within their own communities doing physical work. And it's just not just physical, it's mental, it's training. That gives them an alternative now. Yeah. And, and some of them were getting notoriety and building uh, careers off of it. Like some of them, you know, they were becoming you know, YouTube um, well, creators, but like with big followings. And so they were mm. able to monetize YouTube and they were getting sponsorship deals. And it was like, you know, a way out that most of the time when people are pursuing things that, you know, <laughs> jobs even if it is like drug dealing it it is to try to make enough money to break out of out out of that system again nobody wants to to stay in that um that type of environment where you know they have the chance to go to jail and they're getting you know frisked all the time and and that sort of thing that's not fun for anybody so a lot of kids were seeing like hey this is a path for me for me you know to maybe get you know to to get out of this this rut to get gain some notoriety to do something that i love and maybe build a life around it and that hadn't been seen before for this i mean definitely with sports and that's why that's a Mm. big a big thing that kids pursue but this was a new sport and a new culture that could be done without anything like i don't know many i don't know any other sports necessarily that you could do that you could practice and perform without anything i mean even with you know football you need a ball right or running shoes right and you need yeah uniform like you can do this barefoot with nothing around you but just gravity and your body weight Mm. so there is no barrier to entry and that's why it appealed to a lot of people was because if you don't have anything, even if you don't have a park around, I can go in my backyard right now. I can drop down right here in my home office and start doing push-ups and do creative push-ups and start bouncing around a little bit. Yeah. Hmm. We don't realize how much that, how important that is, I guess. Like, you but it, you just have to watch the Olympics. Like how many black cyclists were there? One in the whole thing, you know, that it just goes to show, doesn't it? It's like that you don't realize how much, I mean, physically mentally they're on a par with everybody else but you you realize how much of it is access and access to it's not you know affording a bike okay they're expensive but not that expensive but it, it's everything that goes with her it. it's being part of a bike club and a community and the elitism that goes with it as well right mm. but you've got this which is very democratic as well that anybody can do it and I guess, I guess what I want to move on to as well is that you know how do you make that work because you've got a great story in here and as a, as a storyteller, as a documentary maker, how do you make the audience connect? And I want to th- just throw some ideas out there that's from, from my, I mean, I'm not a, a filmmaker, but I'm just being a student of people like yourself and watching movies, a consumer, if you like. And I saw, I've seen a couple of sports documentaries recently. I saw um, The River Runner on Netflix, which is about the kayak guy who goes up to Everest and kayaks the four rivers and then I, I watched just last night the michael schumacher formula one documentary which was really interesting okay. but you know here's the interesting thing is that it's what, what i didn't get is the connection with the the subject i didn't get i mean i, I didn't get the connection with the human 
there, right? Mm. You know, whether it was, I think, Scott Lindgren, I think, in the kayaking one, and Michael Schumacher, obviously. And I wonder, like, how much of that is the director here? How much of that is, you know, so in your case, you obviously had a number of people you could work with. And I think we talked about this. People don't identify with 100 people, do they? They identify those individual stories. How did you work with that? Well, that was very challenging for me. And this, it took years. It took actual years to, to navigate that because, and what's funny is now I've built my whole business and how I help people is through the lessons I learned the hard way making this film because I just went out and was like, I'm just going to go and capture these stories. Didn't really have a vision like or a script, of course, or even really a vision of what the story was going to be. Because at the time when I started, it was a New York story. I lived in New York. I knew the teams going on there. Then in 2011, I call it when that there was a world, a world championship in Latvia, which is one of the Baltic states, you know, post-Soviet country. And I was like, well, first of all, where's Latvia? Secondly, wow, geez, I, you know, because one of the guys from New York had gone. And so I'd seen pictures and stuff from his like Facebook profile. And I was like, man, I should really like inquire about this. This is, this is wild. You know, there were only like 10 countries that competed. So I reached out to the founder of this world street workout federation in the Russian or in the Eastern Bloc. they called it street workout. Um, and I just made a contact with him and, 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 and I went the next year because I was like, there's no way I can't just investigate this. Then I found out that like, whoa, because the next year, 2012, there was 20 countries. It had doubled in size, 20 countries competing. I'm like, I don't think I have a New York story anymore. Like this is all over the world and nobody has documented this yet. In New York, a lot of programs were trying to capture to make a TV show out of it because they knew something was growing in the streets and it was really cool, but they didn't know how to do it. I infiltrated it so well, I think, because I became a part of the culture. I would train with these guys and I got pretty good, not like competing for a world championship good, but pretty good to hang, you know, in an exercise session. Again, anybody could do this and it was very democratized. So I, when I realized it was all over the world and I met everybody at the world championship, of course, now I'm the filmmaker there. They're like, oh, you got to come to France. Oh, you got to come to Croatia. You know, everybody wanted me to go visit them. So in 2013, that's exactly what I did with no, still no overall vision of where this story is going. Now, when I get home in 2014, I'm like, I've got a thousand stories and a thousand characters and how in the hell am I going to put them into one movie? That was a major, major challenge, which it took me two more years to then figure out. And it was reduce, 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 find the compelling characters that can work together for a singular narrative that, that can elicit the, the most emotion and connection with their stories. Right. And also carry the story forward. And I had to, you know, uh, I think it was Faulkner, William Faulkner, who, who has a classic, you know, adage of like, kill your darlings hmm. for, for writers, which is like, you have to kill your favorite characters or your favorite scenes or, you know, things like that. Well, I had to do that. And it was really hard because some of my darlings were friends of mine that I had spent time with and interviewed and they didn't make the movie, you know, and that sucked. That was tough to do, but you had to for the sake of the for the sake of the film. So I've got all this extra footage. And it's funny, we sold the license, uh, most of the licensing to Red Bull TV. It was mm. on there for four years. I just got him back this summer. Um, and I'm kind of thinking like, oh, what what should I do with this? I got a lot going on other than this, but it's like I do have all this. This like a uh, uh, cutting room floor footage that has never been seen mm. before. Like, and this, the sport 
has kind of plateaued, but the culture has continued to grow massively. Um, so I'm like, huh, what should I, what should I do with that? But it took a lot of work to find that storyline to follow because you can't just get out there and jump and spend three minutes on Dennis and three minutes on Lindsay and three minutes on Morris. That's too disconnected. And again, like your original point, we can't relate to that. So I had to find the origins and how it grew from New York and then merge to the world and like how it's changing the world and, and, and figure that out. And ultimately we got there through a lot of testing focus groups, test screenings, you know, surveys, all, all that sort of stuff. And, and we finally got there and it found a nice home at Red Bull TV, which is, I thought, a, a perfect place for it. Yeah, it's awesome. Do you go into that knowing what kind of characters you're looking for? Or is it like now with hindsight, you know, or is it still something, for example, if you were to do this again, you wouldn't know who the interesting characters are going to be and you kind of have to bring it all home and then analyze it how does that work because i'm fascinated because th this is such an important part isn't it how do we, you make the audience identify with your yeah. characters mm -hmm. that is a great question and it's any there's a lot of documentary series now that have to do that and you can do that you can mitigate some of that um you know risk that i had just capturing everybody by pre-interviews you can sit down and have little skypes or zooms uh with people beforehand or just in 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 real life and kind of get to know their story mm. a little bit. And if it's like, Hey, my mom's hanging on for her job. Uh, you know, she's a single mom with three kids hanging on, you know, by a thread. And if I don't get this championship, you know, then we may lose our house. Well, that's a pretty compelling story that people can, can relate to on a deeper level than, Hey, I'm going to compete in the world championships. Mm. Right. And there's stakes. Stakes is everything. So, you know, that if, John doesn't win, his mom might lose his house. It's like, holy crap, I got to see what happens with this, right? Or if you know if he does win, he saves his mom's house. Holy crap, I got to watch and see if he can do this, right? So you can learn a little bit that, about that beforehand, but you don't really know what's because there's this, again, this primitive level of who we connect with. Now that mm. story is powerful, but we also have to connect with John, the person. And if John is, is hard to connect with, it's sometimes hard to build that character. So what what makes him connectable then? What are the, cause you have relatable, to, re relatability. We have to be able but to, what see is that? Is that like, yeah. he, you see him suffering, you see his, what is it that he okay, exhibits? So, yeah. Here's what people get, get wrong. It's not that we have to have experienced exactly what John has experienced, right? That's the surface level story. We have to have felt what he has felt mm. emotionally. So there's only a handful of emotions. Is it pain? Is it loss? Is it happiness? Is it love? Right. Whether he comes from and, and spent time, you know, in the same juvenile center as, as Mike Tyson or not, that doesn't matter that we are from little Washington, North Carolina, you know, that he's trying to break out of a place that is holding if he feels restrained and that he can never, you know, grow out of like, that is something I can relate to from a small town in mm. rural North Carolina, the same way someone in the city of New York can, right? We both feel trapped by our environments. That is the point we connect on. So you have to have someone who, who elicits these, like these primitive psychological drivers that we care about, that we can relate to. And you'll see that with, with, with somebody, is he the, you know, the tragic here, like the talent that, that, that can't seem to get his shit together, you know, because no matter what he does on the surface, we can relate to that. Like I've got greatness inside me. I just can't seem to do right. You know, mm. um, there's a lot of those, you know, 
archetypes if you if are you, you aware of those because it's almost like a shakespearean play isn't it these characters yeah. well, that you say oh no, that's that struggling artist dude that you could have been like with a, a min, you know minstrel from the 13th century of course, or something. that's the point you're illustrating the point right now shakespeare knew that too on a on a deeper psychological level just like the politicians do like shakespeare mm. was an expert storyteller but like that's the point is it hasn't changed since shakespeare's time it hasn't changed since we were cavemen it's the same things that we ultimately care about. They have evolved, but if you break them down to the to the root, to the core, it's the same thing, right? So that is how oh. that yeah, that's how you find a compelling character is like what is he going through and what are the emotions that come from that? Is he doubting himself? Hmm. Is she is she on the verge of success like a you know aspirational story like you know going going to achieve something? We all know what it's like to almost be there and want it so bad, right? We can relate to that. If we're almost there at becoming you know, a, 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 a C-level person at a marketing agency you know, on Madison Avenue new in New York, like that might not be our surface storyline, but we understand mm. what it's like to have a goal and be so close you can taste it. And then, damn it, that person comes along and takes it out from under you. Like, that's all it comes we down relate. to. Yeah. yeah, we've had that. I can tell you a handful of stories that have no, they're not, you know, different on the surface at all. And we'll all be like, yep, that's happened to me mm. or most of us. And so that's what we look for. So when you want a compelling character, you want someone that 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 people can like relate to on that level what's mm. what's he going to you want to, you want them to cheer for that person yeah so they have to see something within themselves because why graham we've already talked about this everything comes back to identity it's our identity in which we see in that person that makes us want to root for them because if yeah. essentially and effectively we're rooting for ourselves right it all yeah. comes back to us and and it's mirroring what we see within ourselves yeah i mean if you look at for example the godfather going off slightly but you know you've got this classic challenge of you how do you make people relate to somebody who's a violent criminal and oh, has killed people I, right but you know capella easily. you know as, as a he's done an amazing job making us relate to you know the corleone's michael you yeah. know that i identify with his struggle you know he's of course you do. just he's kind of like he's caught up in events he's like the accidental hero right so, he didn't want to be here he's just kind of thrust into this world and he's just kind of because making of his pressures way. pressures by his family and needing to to provide and fill we get that up. right <laughs> yes everybody does this is dude i talk about this so much and this is why the anti-hero is so popular now and here's the thing we're all this is what we forget when we go back to the beginning of our conversation when we're all so divided right now mm. we all think that we are inherently right or good, and the other side is inherently wrong or bad. None of us are inherently good or bad. We're all flawed, layered, yeah. multi-layered, multi-dimensional human beings. So Tony Soprano or Michael Corleone are not all bad villains. If they were, it'd be very easy to hate them. You're the mm. bad guy. But the mm. thing is, they're both fighting for their families and just trying to navigate it. Tony is dealing with depression and anxiety and having panic attacks. It's like, and he's stuck in a world he really doesn't want to be in. And he's really just trying to, a man just trying to take care of his family. And that's why we're like, come on, Tony, you can do better than that. And we don't really worry that he's killing people on the side and that sort of thing. That's the point. And good people aren't inherently good. They have their own flaws that they're yeah trying to overcome most villains in fact have some backstory where they just made the wrong choice Darth Vader. They, 
There you right. go. Right. That's he was a I'm good saying. guy that's, at his heart he at the end. And so that's what makes you empathize with him because you're yeah. like, damn, you just, you just, you almost had it, Anakin. You almost had it. <laughs> and you came to, 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 to the dark side, you know, or if you want, yeah, if you, here's another little, little like insider tip. If you watch the Lion King and oh. you see Scar who killed Mufasa, he has that scar on his face. What does that scar represent? Pain. He has been through something in his life that has caused him pain on such a level that he wants to take it out on everybody else. Had he not had that scar, he probably wouldn't be the same person, mm. the same dark, demented person that kills his own brother in order to take over the kingdom. Somewhere along, and the difference between the villain and the hero is that when that moment happens, when the shit hits the fan, the villain goes that way and the hero makes another choice to go the hard path and like face it. But it's the same moment and the same person up until that point, and that's the split. Yeah, I love this conversation. I mean, for those that are listening that are probably skeptical, hopefully, a healthy skepticism as well about storytelling. You know, we're talking about it in the context of film, but in also politics, we've talked about it, and obviously it applies to business. We only have to look, for example, just recently, a reference Netflix as well. It's getting far too much prominence in this podcast but um well because everybody can relate to it i watched the documentary on the inspiration four which was the spacex shuttle mm. that went into orbit didn't go to the moon or anything but it's interesting so they chose the whole idea of it was to create commercial space flight for the average person so they they focused heavily on average mm. right because you can imagine being an astronaut you know you've got to be like you know fighter pilot superhero some of the guys that probably compete in your competitions <laughs> at x level or whatever but they they made a point of choosing these very four this is a relatability so they picked four people and they were like super average and one of the i don't know if you've seen this but like one of the women they picked is cancer survivor and uh, when they said, like, you've been picked for this competition and you, you, we're sending you to space, the first thing she, she said, just to show that she had no clue and she wasn't an astrophysicist or anything, she, go, she said, are we going to the moon? Seriously, she asked them that. And obviously they were just going into orbit, right? She didn't know that much about space. But they picked four very average people, I suppose, averagely amazing. But they, they very consciously did this because if you imagine they picked four elites nobody would care mm -hmm. nobody would empathize nobody would relate to it and they would spend billions of dollars of this huge advert pr campaign and it would just flop right but they so to put it out there to people is that's very conscious people know what they're doing they're picking people that we can relate to and they're very mm -hmm. consciously looking for these qualities as well I mean, in the same way i suppose a director looks for them in Absolutely. who am i going to pick who are they going to relate to you know, they had to have somebody, they picked four points, like one who would represent hope, one who'd represent progress, one who'd represent prosperity and one leadership. And, you know, you probably think that your sort of lineup would look like these kind of like fighter pilots, but they were just, you know, they had a teacher, they had a, you know, somebody who had her own business. It was just like really, really normal. I was amazed by it. I don't know if you see this, but it's just how normal it is, how relatable it's become. But it's, it's a masterpiece really in PR. And, and did they say out loud that they chose one that represented hope and one that represented... Yeah. yeah. So that's a perfect example of what we've been talking about, like the primitive psychological drivers, like that's them 
naming them, right? The surface level is this person's a teacher, right? We don't have to have experienced what they've mm. experienced. We have to have felt what they have felt. And then they named that, right? And that, I don't know if the teacher was hope or whatever, but they, they named what that emotion was, leadership, these things that, that we can relate to. What they do on the surface isn't, isn't, it's not irrelevant, but it's not as important as mm. what they really represent, the feelings that they represent. How does this knowledge change your understanding and even enjoyment of movies as a consumer now? You're watching a documentary of somebody else. How do you look at it now, knowing what you do about creating these things? Oh, you know, just as I did when I was a kid. It hasn't altered anything, right? Unless it's, you know, I will, I'll change that. I can notice poor storytelling more easily. Mm. great storytelling still does the same thing because if it's great i'm still a human i still am emotional as hell so i still connect with the things and when you i connect with that it elicits this emotional response and now i am in the story this really neurologically happens to your brain it's a it's a it's a real thing neural coupling and narrative trans transportation you picture yourself in the story and if it's still done well it doesn't matter that i know the ins and outs of storytelling if it's done well it's tapping into something deeper than than my you know conscious level right it's subconscious and so yeah i go along for the ride and love it now if i'm watching it to study it to apply some of the techniques to my film and now i'm watching the cuts or i'm watching the for the writing or something like that that's a different thing i'm i'm doing work at that point but when i sit down with my wife to watch netflix uh yeah i mean i lose myself just like i did when i was five years old watching that's movie. great to hear you don't yeah. get like the chef's disease which is like chefs hate cooking at home right because yeah, they, they just yeah, they like don't because they make, they they make, they make, yeah, yeah, my That's brother's work. a chef, so I know that world very well. <laughs> <laughs> they eat junk food at home, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely they do. All right, let's around. I mean, it's been amazing. I'm sure people want to find out about your work as well. So they've got a, a taster of it. We'll talk about how they can do that in a minute. <clears throat> sure. Um, just rounding up then, a bit of a challenge for you then, Rain. If you, mm -hmm. like, let's say I'm a uh, commissioner for... Netflix, I'm going to give you a massive budget such that you can't complain about the subject that comes with it to do a documentary. And so all, all sort of ethical questions are off, right? All bets are off. You're just going to, you have to do this thing, right? You're going to do this documentary. What is the one subject that you feel if you were to do a documentary about at very top level, you think would be really hard for you to make work? Is there a particular subject that you feel, man, that, that's just either it's, overdone or just too hard or you don't relate to it or could you make a documentary about anything no no and it's hard for me to gonna to be to answer this directly with like an example like i couldn't do this topic i like the second question a lot better could i make a documentary about anything absolutely not i mean if i was gonna say even if if a client paid me to then then possibly but still no because each one of us, this is something I tell to, to people in my workshops often. It's like, I could give you all the same budget and the same topic. Let's say it's, uh, you know, whatever, my Cookie Monster coffee mug. You're going to make mm. a documentary about that. And I give you all 10 grand, make a five-minute documentary about it. Every single person in there is going to make a different documentary because they are all different people, right? So the stories that I tell well are never going to be the same as the stories you tell well, even if they're about the same topic. What's something that you that you love? Did you play sports growing up? Oh, yeah, massive. What'd you play? All of them. <laughs> Triathlon. Yeah. You grew up in England, right? Yeah. So you played Football. footy. Yeah, of right. course. 
great. So there's something I have that my game got rained out last night. I play in a men's league on Wednesday nights. I'm so bummed about but that. But football anyway. with the feet or the hands? With the feet, buddy. All right. Okay. All right. We got that one so, sorted. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so we can talk about that. So you and I can both make, make uh, a film about football. Mm. Even we could both make a film about Messi. You know, and it would be totally different because your experience in Messi is different than mine, right? You, mm. You're a different person with a different journey, with a different story. So, yeah, no, I couldn't make one, not a good one about any topic. It's got to be something that I also can relate to so that I can distribute those But if you, if you didn't, like, have a history of relating to it, let's say I, I'm going to give you uh, a challenge to do a documentary about cricket. It's like... I, I don't like cricket so much and it's massive in certain countries, but most uh, people don't even understand it. Could you, yeah. could you find a way? How would you go? Let's like, say you had that challenge, Red Bull commission. You had to do it. Great. Yeah. I had to do it. Great. I like you go about that. Like how do I was find a, choice, a connection? If it was a choice, I would probably say I'm not the guy, right. but I, in this scenario, I have to do it. So cool. I like this. So the story is never about the sport, about cricket. Yeah, I'm not giving you the history lesson of cricket. The story is about the people. So it was raised up. It was the world that they were in was freestyle calisthenics, or as the Russians called it, uh, street workout. That's just the backdrop, right? It's about the people. So what I would do is find compelling people that would tell that story for me. I don't know anything about cricket, but I don't have to. They would explain it and they wouldn't explain, here's the rules, here's the history, here's how you become a good player. They would explain what it means to their lives and why they've dedicated their lives to this and why the sport is so beautiful and so great, right? The beautiful game, right? That, that, that they would do that for me, but the, this, their journey would have to be compelling because we're not following the journey of cricket. We're following the journey of the people who play cricket. So often I'll have friends who always call me like, man, you should really do, you should do a documentary about the, the micro brewing industry going on. Cause now in little towns, even like my own of 9,000 people, there's like two breweries now. I'm like, what the hell? Mm. There was not even a bar when I grew up. And so it's a thing, right? And it's a cool culture and subculture. But when I, when they send me those great ideas that I should just go ahead and like find money for and make a movie about uh, unsolicited advice. I always respond with like, okay, that could be cool. But like, who are the characters, you know, because you can't just make a film about, you can make a film about micro brewing, but it wouldn't be that interesting unless you're a nerdy micro brewer. You're only the people in that niche. You can make a compelling movie on a wider level about two brothers who are struggling, you know, mm. to start their own business, a microbrewery in Little Washington, North Carolina, a place that's never even had a bar. Why did they choose this place? Well, they could have gone to a bigger place. What problems are they facing? Oh, their brothers are probably going to deal with family issues while they're trying to build a bit, you know, yada, yada, yada. So that's how I would do the cricket documentary. And that's how any documentary should be done. And that's how raise up was done. Who are the people who I want to follow to tell this story? It's not about that surface level. It's about that. So, so there's in that way, if I was a challenge, that's what I would have to do. But if you were to ask me, Hey, do you want to make a documentary on cricket? I would say there's probably somebody better who already has their heart attached to it and knows where the heart of that game is and yada, yada, yada. But mm. yeah, you could do it, especially if you had this big Netflix budget where I could spend some time researching it. Right. Yeah. We'll send you out to India, spend two years there. Yeah. When you're doing independent filmmaking, you lose a lot of the luxury of having that budget for that pre-production and development stage. And you well, just got to wait. Keeping it lean, Rain. So agile, nice. as they call it now, if you were to, um, just last question, then if you were to do a, a documentary about anything non-sporty, which, uh, you know, you, you just 
fascinated, maybe it's something that you don't know so well, but just fascinated by this subject. What, what, what do you think? You must have had these thoughts go through your head. So maybe share with something that you're not going to do because then don't give it away if you're working on a project on the back burner. But what do you think would make a really, really fascinating documentary that somebody should have a go at that you hmm. think maybe well, doesn't get enough? I don't just work on sports documentaries. I think now that has kind of morphed into telling untold stories um, in a way about smaller subcultures that have mm. kind of this deeper impact. And so um, this may not answer your question, but I'm, I mean, there's a film I'm currently working on that is not sport related that I'm really passionate about. I don't know if that's. Yeah. What what's the subculture? For. So this is a little esoteric, especially for North Carolinians, but there is a tie here between your world and my world. Uh, this is about the, the first attempt at an English settlement in the New World in what is now mm. known in America. This happened on the coast of North Carolina. It is referred to now as the Lost Colony of Roanoke yeah. Island. I don't, okay, are you familiar with this? I think I've read the stories on it, yeah. Okay, cool. So this, this is what is deemed America's oldest mystery. This was the mm. first attempt back in the late 1500s. I'll give you the very shortest version. They come over here. There's 115 colonists. It's the first time they've ever brought men or, or women and children, or they have a baby over here, the first English baby, and they brought women. So they were to, to, to make a colony and live here, not just reconnaissance to figure out what's going on and where the Spanish are. And they run out of supplies very quickly. The governor goes back to England to get supplies, can't make it back for three years because England is at war with Spain and politics and yada, yada, yada. And when he comes back, all the colonists are gone. And there's only a word written on a tree Croatoan and, and Crow, C-R-O, written somewhere else. Now, and, and, and we never found them. This is the lost colony. Now, after that, 20 years after that, Jamestown happens, Plymouth Rock happens, America uh -huh. becomes America, right? So for 400 years, this has been like the lost colony. And in, in the past 100 years, this has been a huge part of North Carolina history and heritage and lore and economy. And it is still America's oldest mystery. Now it's spawned this whole... Uh, you know, it was a season of American horror story. Like there's all these supernatural films that are made about it and that sort of thing. And there's quest to find the lost colony still by all these different archeological groups for a hundred years. They've been trying to find this every year. Somebody has found the lost colony because they found a pot somewhere. Right. So we were following one of these uh, just local boys that kind of is a amateur archaeologist who thinks he's found them very compelling. What we have found along the way is the mystery was bullshit. It was fabricated in the early 1900s as a response to this post reconstruction era where blacks were having some success and white supremacy and the Ku Klux Klan and all that stuff started in that point. All these statues that we're tearing down now were built around this time. <sighs> and the myth, the mystery started as from two things, building this local economy based off of this narrative, this story we had just had the Wright brothers first powered flight in 1903 in the mm. same basic area of North Carolina, the outer banks, the, this barrier uh, strip of barrier islands. So they took that story and the story of the lost colonists and kind of used that as pillars to build this tourist economy at a place, a beach location that was very desolate in the early 1900s. At the same time, all of these racial tensions were happening and the previous couple of hundred years, we just, we, we, assume they went to where they said they went because Croatoan represents an island and a Native American tribe, which was the only Native American tribe still friendly to us at that point. 
So he told the governor told them to write down where they would go if they had to leave and put a cross if they had to leave under distress. They just wrote the name, no cross. He just never got to go down there and verify that's where they went. So as Jamestown and all this, you know, Plymouth Rock and America becomes America, we assume that they went there. Even 100 years later, somebody came back to that area and found gray eye Native Americans wearing English clothing. Right? It wasn't until the 1900s where we made this a mystery because we would rather believe that these people vanished into mm. thin air than that they went down to a Native American tribe and assimilated. Went native. Folks. Man. Right. Wow. So and. This mystery, there's a play that started in 1937, an outdoor drama that still runs to this day. That is the 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 foundation, the cornerstone of, of that tourist economy that is about mm. the lost colony, America's oldest mystery. And we have now found that it was complete BS. We made up this mystery. So it's this very small story that's very unique to mm. eastern North Carolina. But touching on the issues that our whole country is facing now, which is the whitewashing of historical narratives and how our identity has be, is being challenged because we could have had this beautiful origin story where we actually mixed with Native Americans yeah. peacefully. And instead, you know the origin story and, mm. and the original sin of America. It's built upon what we've done to the Native Americans and then what mm. we did with African slaves. And we're still fighting that battle of what, who we are as a country. And this is a very small story that tells that big picture. So again, we're unearthing these bigger themes. Yeah, and these are very primal, Rain. These are yeah. primal themes that you, you're sort of, un, it's, it's a wound as well in many cases. It can be healed, right? Yeah, it could be if we share Man, the right stories. That's mind-blowing. When does it, what's that coming out on Amazon or where are you going to no, publish? It? We're still in the middle of making it. This oh. we've been working on this for years, but it was only last year in 2020, which obviously the pandemic set everything back. It was only last year that we uncovered all these facts. So our oh. film, if we'd released this film in 2019, it would have been a, it would have been archeological historical story. And, and that had been kind of it. That's the beautiful thing about documentaries, especially independent documentaries. They oh. take you on their own journey. Right. When I started Raise Up, I had no idea where it would take me. The story yeah, would evolve. And neither did I with this story is called Finding Croatoan. And I didn't either. And just last year, after already working on it for a few years, we uncovered this massive part piece of the puzzle, which has changed the whole story, made it deeper, made it now relatable to people all over the country because it's you know, it's, it's about the same themes and emotions that we're dealing with mm. in all these other parts of our society, you know. These statues weren't built after the Civil War that we're tearing down over here. They were built in the 20s and 30s yeah. and the very late 1800s at the earliest. Absolutely. Wow, that's powerful stuff. No. Yeah. yeah, good for you, taking it head so on. Yeah, trying and to, you know. And, and, and It's a story and, trying to be told as well, isn't it? You're almost like a, uh, what's the word, uh, an auger. What's the word? You're, you're a medium for the story itself. There right? you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, it's a story that needs to be told. Every other story about the lost colony of Roanoke Island is about the theories of where they went. Mm. It doesn't matter if it's history channel, discovery channel, it's all over the UK as well. Mm. Um, uh, it's all about like, did they go here? Did they go there? You know, there's even like far-fetched theories. Did aliens, you know, come yeah. get them? Like, um, but it's never about this underbelly of why the mystery became a mystery anyway. Right. So your, your theory is that they all assimilated. 
Yes, most and most real That's historians uh, believe that, and maybe uh, all 115 of them didn't go there. They might have right. split up, but the science, the the findings that the group that I'm following are finding uh, in the dirt is English artifacts. Hmm. among native american artifacts in that layer in that air area uh, or air era because you can dig down and it's like a timetable you can see this is the 1800s level this is 1700s and this is the late 1500s you can see the food that they eat change from hmm. fish and turtles to deer and birds because why lead shot and rifles were introduced to them at that point. You can see what they used to eat in the 1500s and then what they used to eat in the 1600s hmm. by, by the bones. And you can start to see things like English artifacts among their own in that right time period. So they're putting together this story of where they went. Um, and the thing is you will probably never solve this mystery unless you were to find, you know, a hundred your human bones buried in English style of burying because the, yeah. the natives didn't bury in the same way. You probably won't find that. It's probably underwater now because these are islands. So they've been eroded completely and changed, you know, over the, over the past 20 years, much less the past 400. But the point that we're trying to uncover is like, why is this a mystery anyway? Like yeah. Everyone before a hundred years ago thought they went where they said they went. Why wouldn't they? It's the meta story, isn't it? It's the story of the lost, you know, was the finding Croatan. And then there's the meta story of why yeah. that's become a story in itself. Yeah. Which is fascinating. That's amazing, man. It reminds me of I've got 1984 as a book behind me on the shelf here. And it's all about, you know, stories control. If you control history with story, you can yeah. re, you can change the future. So, in the same way, if you can rewrite, what actually happened with a different narrative. You change people's yep. understanding of the world, right? And, and totally. And the thing, and we can probably end here, the thing that so I think is so great, even though we're in a really challenging time right now, is for the first time ever, we're starting to realize that a lot of the stories that we've been told that have impacted our history, our historical narrative, and therefore our future or our present were bullshit. And now mm -hmm. we're starting to break down those narratives and reveal the real stories, right? And so we're able to rewrite history to unveil the truth and hopefully alter our future. Right now we're in the middle of all this and it's a really, really murky time, especially here in America. Yeah, man, it's great to speak to you. Powerful yeah. stuff. For those listening who want to find out more about you, Rain, let's take him there. Where's, where yeah. did he find your work? So, I mean, I, the good thing, and I'll give my mom uh, props for this, is there's not a lot of Rain Bennett's out there in the world, or at least that, that aren't doing as much public facing work as I do. So, Googling Rain Bennett will get you very far, uh, yeah. but rainbennett.com is my website and most of my materials there. I'm all over social media. My goal is to help people understand how to leverage stories and to make those connections to then, as we said in the very beginning of the conversation, pursue their missions and their purposes. So if they're a marketer for a small business, if they're a nonprofit trying to get donations, if they're trying to grow a community or just trying to have better relationships or find their own path, it's the same Path, it's the same elements and the same path that get us there. Mostly all the lessons that I learned the hard way through Raise Up, hmm. I dissect and deliver to people now so they can learn that in a little bit easier manner. And still how to tell great stories when you don't have a lot of resources like I didn't when making Raise Up. So rainbennett.com, I do speeches, I do workshops. I have a podcast as well. You were on that recently. 
So I'm around and I love this stuff. I live and breathe it. So people can feel free to just email me if they have a question, they can book a call, whatever, I'm here.